COVID-19 continues to circle the globe and the pandemic is showing no sign of abatement. We're going to talk more about the coronavirus right here on another special episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome here to The Nurse Keith Show. I love having the opportunity to use this platform for educating and informing you the Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with those you care about. I'll be regularly publishing more episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. There will be no corporate sponsors of these episodes and no advertising of my services or business. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide if you feel these episodes are a valuable approach to the virus. Now for a disclaimer, all information in these episodes about COVID-19 uses the most up-to-date information I can access, as well as some personal opinions and reactions. Please note that the situation is changing by the moment and any information I share in any episode may not fully apply once new data has been updated. Please also note that nothing shared in the course of any Nurse Keith Coaching COVID-19 podcast is intended for diagnosis or treatment. So please consult your healthcare provider or your local department of health. And if you hear or read something I've shared that appears to be erroneous, if you can, please leave an evidence-based comment by emailing me directly at keith at nursekeith.com. Thank you for understanding. Stay safe and keep informed. This episode is being recorded on March 25th, 2020. And remember that the show notes can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash the word COVID-19-4. Now, there is a lot to talk about. Things just keep changing and changing. And we're all trying to keep up to the best of our ability. And it is a bear because this virus is still in flux and our response to the virus, to the pandemic, is still in flux. Depending on where we live, what country we're residing in, or even what city or municipality we're in, because the decentralized response is, let's say, somewhat splintered to a certain extent. So I've been checking out as many podcasts and articles and posts as I can in order to gain more and more understanding of what is really going on with this virus and what I might need to communicate to you, the Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can then use it in your clinical practice or in the ways in which you educate others. So there's a podcast called The Clinical Problem Solvers and It's at clinicalproblemsolving.com. And one of their recent episodes is episode 74, On COVID-19, A Case-Based Discussion with Drs. Block, Faker, and Chin Hong. Now, some of this stuff gets pretty intense and pretty highly clinical, some of which I must admit is over my head. But I wanted to bring you just a couple highlights from that episode of Clinical Problem Solvers, and you can share that information and also access the full episode over in the show notes. So the one thing they wanted to get across during this conversation is that all cold and flu-like symptoms 
need to be triaged for COVID-19, especially if there are cold or flu-like symptoms that last more than a couple weeks and are not responding to the usual symptom management and treatment. The differential diagnosis always needs to be for COVID, and we need to make sure people are not infected with this virus that's causing this worldwide pandemic. So if you, for instance, or someone you know and love, or a patient is presenting with cold or flu-like symptoms, some sort of respiratory infection of some kind, and it is not getting better, you must cajole whoever the provider is taking care of that patient that it may not, quote-unquote, just be a cold or flu, and that patient should certainly be tested for COVID-19. Now, in special respiratory screening clinics, that are recommended for patients with COVID-19. They mention in this episode of Clinical Problem Solvers that those patients should be separated out in terms of risk so that infecting others who are not yet infected doesn't occur. But I am hearing tell, even from people who call me or email me with information or complaints or things going on in their neck of the woods, that that is not happening. And the patients aren't necessarily being screened in a safe place and risk of contagion to other patients in a common area, for instance, is high. So it is best if you run a clinic or work in a clinic or some sort of setting, primary care or otherwise, make sure you have special respiratory screening areas where proper PPE is worn and utilized correctly by the staff who are doing the triaging and make sure those patients are separated from the rest of the population and each other. Now, they also mention in this episode of Clinical Problem Solvers that we are seeing GI symptoms in somewhere between 10 to 25% of patients. And at this moment, what I'm hearing and what they say in this podcast episode, that it's generally abdominal pain and diarrhea. So a lot of the general public out there still does not know this, including likely your families and your friends and some of your colleagues as well. They think, oh, diarrhea. Oh, I just need to sit at home and ride this out. And they have no idea that they're shedding virus. Another symptom is a new potential clinical presentation of positive COVID-19. They do not really know why this happens, but there is evidence-based data being developed, and the symptom that is being seen in some COVID-19 patients is a loss of sense of smell and the loss of sense of taste. They currently do not have a clue that I can find anywhere that I've read or heard so far what the cause is and why in certain people COVID-19 leads to a loss of the sense of smell and taste. It's a very strange manifestation, but something that can also be a red flag for a clinician and a diagnostician who are really on their toes. There's an axiom that was shared by one of the medical professionals being interviewed on this episode of the Clinical Problem Solvers, and he said the COVID-era axioms applies 
quote unquote, don't forget about everything else. So when you have someone presenting with various types of symptoms, you need to look at things like community acquired pneumonia, either viral or bacterial, fungal or mycobacterial infections, and other causes. So there can be a co-infection apparently, and we need to always have a differential diagnosis that rules out COVID-19 or rules in COVID-19 and other respiratory symptoms and conditions as well. Also, if you're working with immunocompromised patients or perhaps you, dear listener, are immunocompromised or any of your friends, family, or colleagues, you also have to think about adventitious secondary infections that are happening. So with people with HIV, they can experience cryptococcal pneumonia. They can experience PCP. So there are other secondary infections, respiratory infections, that can infect and impact patients who are positive for COVID-19. So please bear that in mind and pass that information on to anyone you think who needs it. And if you work with a physician, a PA, a NP, a nurse who you feel needs this information, send them to clinicalproblemsolving.com in this special case-based discussion with Drs. Block, Thaker, and Shin Hong. They also shared on this episode that the presence of influenza makes COVID less likely in a patient. So if you test for influenza and it is positive, it's less likely that you're going to see COVID, but it can't be ruled out. And again, if a flu patient doesn't respond to treatment within a week or two, consider COVID as a potential differential diagnosis. And they said up to 20% of people will have a co-infection with another respiratory virus. So this is getting very, very complicated. So keeping up on the changes is hard, but see if you can manage to do so, especially if you were in a clinical capacity where knowing some of these signs and symptoms and changes in the course of the COVID-19 infection will be helpful and possibly save a life. Now, two other podcasts I recommend checking out are, of course, Ted O'Connell's Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Ted was my guest on the last, the previous episode of the Nurse Keith Show, and that was COVID-19-3. Ted's podcast is excellent. I'll be out on it soon for my interview with Ted. And again, it is called Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. The other podcast I recommend is Curbsiders, C-U-R-B, like curb, like on a street, and Ciders, S-I-D-E-R-S, Curbsiders. There are several episodes there on COVID-19 that I highly recommend. Curbsiders and Clinical problem solvers are not 100% COVID 24-7. However, there are some great COVID episodes, more to come, I'm sure. And there's some other great stuff that's covered in these podcasts if you just want to get up to speed and learn a great deal of high-quality evidence-based clinical information without reading 
or going through articles and thumbing through books. You can learn it through these conversations. It's a great way to take in information. One other thing I've learned this past week that's very important to understand, we talked about diarrhea and abdominal pain as new signs of COVID-19 infection, even in the absence of fever and respiratory symptoms. Now, from Medscape, there's an article titled, Fecal Evidence of COVID-19 Raises Transmission Concerns. So let's talk about this for a second. What does it mean? Now, I'm going to read you a couple quotes from this Medscape article by Dr. David A. Johnson, MD, published on March 18th, 2020. It's not news to tell you that the coronavirus, known as COVID-19, is a worldwide problem. The initial outbreak of this novel virus in Wuhan in the Hubei province of China, first described in December 2019, has since moved on to being declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. He goes on. The classic description of COVID-19 is a respiratory illness that manifests with fever, dry cough, and dyspnea on exertion. However, we're starting to see the potential for GI implications of COVID-19 as well. This was observed with similar viral respiratory illnesses such as SARS, which emerged in 2003, and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, which emerged in 2012. These infections were transmitted through contact and viral spreading via micro droplets transmitted from the respiratory tract, as is also alleged for COVID-19. A fair percentage of patients with MERS and SARS developed GI symptoms later in the course of the disease. A continuation of the quote, In a recently published single-center case series of 138 consecutive hospitalized patients with confirmed COVID-19, investigators reported that approximately 10% of patients initially presented with GI symptoms prior to the subsequent development of respiratory symptoms. Common and often very subtle symptoms included diarrhea, nausea, and abdominal pain, with the less common symptom being nonspecific GI illness. Now, there is evidence now that we may be seeing fecal transmission of COVID-19, meaning that this disease actually can be shed in the stool and can be passed by fecal oral transmission. At the end of this article, The physician writes, when we consider other disease states with fecal-oral transmission, the classic example that comes to mind is Clostridium difficile, or C. diff. We tell patients with C. diff positive stool that when they use and flush the toilet, they can aerosolize these spores, which may then deposit on the surface areas in their bathroom. As we do with C. diff, we may need to consider recommending the implementation of a high-level disinfection and mechanical disruption approach for COVID-19. This is a very disturbing manifestation from my perspective. And Dr. Johnson says, the potential for fecal-oral transmission of COVID-19 needs to be strongly considered. We need to start to look at some of those same isolation precautions we employ with C. diff. The potential for fecal transmissibility has yet to be defined, but we know from a recent study that the virus has been evident in the stool of just over 50% of patients and remains in nearly 25% otherwise clear of respiratory evidence of the virus. So... 
from GI symptoms to actual fecal shedding and fecal oral transmission of the virus, please keep your head on a swivel because things are changing rapidly, folks. Now, there are also some signs that there's cardiac involvement in COVID-19, which really surprised me because they've been talking lungs, 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 and now all of a sudden there's this emergence of cardiac involvement. There'll be a link in the show notes to an article in sciencenews.org, and the name of the article is Why Some Heart Patients May Be Especially Vulnerable to COVID-19. The subtitle is People with Hypertension and Cardiovascular Disease Risk Severe Bouts of the Disease. And folks, that is yours truly, Nurse Keith. I definitely have underlying cardiovascular disease. So a few quotes from this article from Science News are the following. Researchers know generally that infections can take a toll on people who have other health problems, but SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, may pose particular danger to the heart because of how the virus gets into cells. To invade a cell, SARS-CoV-2 latches onto a protein called angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2. This protein is found on cells in the lungs, allowing the virus to invade these cells and cause respiratory symptoms. But ACE2 also is on heart muscle cells and cells that line the blood vessels. So I heard somewhere, I will have to try to find it, but just take it from me that I did see this, but I can't give you an evidence-based link right now that they are seeing patients without those respiratory symptoms initially having symptoms of heart failure and various cardiovascular manifestations. So COVID-19 is definitely having some cardiac symptoms and signs arise and the clinical picture is definitely getting more and more complicated. Now, let's take a pause for the cause and move a little bit beyond the clinical aspects, and I want to talk about some other things that I am noticing and thinking about in terms of COVID-19 and our response to the pandemic. No matter your political leanings, you might, if you live here in the United States or even abroad, you might notice that there have been vastly mixed messages from President Trump over these few weeks and even in the last few days, several about faces in terms of the virus. These about faces and mixed messages are definitely having a negative impact on not just citizenry here, but also on the markets which President Trump seems to really care about so much, and on clinicians and the information wars in which we're engaged. So when the president comes out and says something like chloroquine, a malarial drug, has great promise to cure the disease, and it's coming really soon, folks. Well, I heard a story the other day. It was very sad on Anderson Cooper 360 on MSNBC that a couple in Arizona decided that since 
the president said that chloroquine was almost a miracle cure that maybe they would take it upon themselves to prescribe it. And the way they did so is that either in their pantry or the shed, the wife identified a little container of something that seemed to be chloroquine. However, it was chloroquine that's put in the water in a koi fish pond, I believe to keep parasites from growing or to kill off parasites that can otherwise kill these beautiful large koi fish. So the wife decided that she and her husband would each take about a teaspoon of this chloroquine chemical mixture, whatever it happened to be. And that turned out to be a quite a few times more the dose of chloroquine than would be recommended for a human being, first of all. This wasn't even intended for human beings. And unfortunately, the husband died a miserable death in the ICU. I think he was intubated, invented, I'm pretty sure. The wife apparently has survived, and I can't imagine the grief that she is experiencing, the guilt and shame for having decided that they would take chloroquine because the president said it was a cure. Now, speaking of grief, my wife and I were talking to a young friend the other day, and he was expressing a great deal of fear and telling us the things that were causing him to feel so anxious in these days of COVID-19. First of all, I feel terrible for young people right now and what they are facing in this world. Climate change has been a scourge enough, and young people's lives have been upended and their futures called into question when we realized just how close we were and continue to be in terms of not being able to turn back the clock on climate change. What my wife and I explained to our young friend is that, from my perspective, the entire world, most likely almost every citizen of this beautiful troubled planet of ours, is in some way experiencing the stages of grief. You may remember that originally Elizabeth Kubler-Ross identified those five stages of grief, denial, anger, fear, acceptance, bargaining, as a linear group of stages that one would go through and then recover from finally landing in acceptance. Well, over the years that changed the research and the thinking around grief showed that those five stages of grief, one can toggle through them back and forth all around for many, many months or years, depending on the circumstance. So you don't just get from fear all the way to acceptance, and then it's just a linear continuum, a linear journey. No, it is an ongoing journey. So what we explained to our young friend is that a lot of people here in the United States, for instance, are stuck in denial. They're saying that this is caused by all sorts of conspiracies and all sorts of spurious things the government or the deep state are doing. That comes from one of the stages of grief, which is denial and also anger. People can toggle between anger and denial for months, if not years, and never quite get on board, whereas others get stuck in 
sadness, for instance. So in terms of the stages of grief, this is a good way to assess oneself and to assess others with whom you come into contact to see if perhaps someone is stuck in a stage and needs some help to be able to move on. I personally, I, Nurse Keith, have been going through those stages. I've experiencing a great deal of sadness, if not depression, at least sadness. I've experienced a great deal of anger. I have been livid, if not apoplectic, about the conspiracy theories, about President Trump's statements and mis-messages, about the ways in which people are, say in Australia, crowding beaches when they've been told to stay home, or or getting together en masse for a wedding, or a funeral, or another gathering. And if you listen to the stories Ted O'Connell and I shared on the last episode, update number three, we talked about the comportment and behavior of medical professionals putting themselves and others at risk. So when denial's there, when bargaining is there, like, if only I did blank, then this would happen or that would happen. Those stages of grief can trip us up if we don't keep doing the inner work, the psycho-emotional spiritual work to make sure we can get through to the other side. Now, a couple other things before I say goodnight. I am receiving emails, messages on social media, calls, texts from nurses all around the country. So what does it mean when here, let's just, for instance, say here in the United States in the 21st century, what does it mean when private citizens themselves are taking out their sewing machines and making masks for nurses in ICUs and other acute care and non-acute care settings because there aren't enough N95s and true protective masks available for the people putting themselves on the line. Talk about anger. This does make me livid, apoplectic, and I just can't believe the level of ill preparedness that we have in this country. And I, my heart just bleeds for the clinicians out there who are thinking, yep, I am not protected enough this could kill me and that's it. That's what I've got to do because I feel morally and ethically bound to stick it out and not disappear or quit or otherwise fly the coop because I can't take it. I have advised several nurses who've reached out to me to quit their jobs if they can't get their demands met. At this point, I know we all need to make a living. We all always do. However, The risk of contagion, the risk of catching this virus and passing it on to your loved ones, colleagues, and others in your community is very, very high. And if you are not getting the protections you need, like I recommended to one of my friends, get together all of your colleagues who are your allies, meet with administration, and demand that your needs be met and that your safety be taken into grave consideration, or tell them you're all going to walk. And watch what they do. Watch how they're going to react. Because it's pretty hard to find good people out there who are willing to work on the front line. So you have leverage. 
So if you're being treated poorly, if you're not being given the proper PEE, rabble rouse, make noise, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Make sure they know you are serious. And if they call your bluff, you may have to actually walk out that door. But if nurses around the country and around the world, especially here in the U.S. where the denial and the lack of preparation is really coming home to roost right now in late March 2020, if you can stand up and make your situation known, get on the news, talk to people, demand what you want, voice your concerns, this will help everyone in the fight against COVID-19. And speaking of people on the front lines, if we don't protect our nursing workforce and other providers and workers as well, what are we going to do when the nursing workforce here in the United States takes a huge hit in terms of nurses being ill or absentee, not to mention burnt out? Where are the resources going to come from? Where is the cavalry that's going to save us riding over the hill under the setting sun to come in and sweep us off our feet and help us out in a tough spot. We need to take care of our nurses. The nurses need to feel taken care of because as the backbone of the healthcare industry, they are so important to the fight against COVID-19 and we need to make sure they have what they need. Now, speaking a few minutes about the grief process and fear and anger and denial. Someone mentioned a really awesome concept to me the other day. I cannot take credit for it, but it is instead of fear mongering, we can be care mongering. So what does that mean? Fear mongering means going around telling everyone the sky is falling, that we're all going to die, etc., etc. That leads to runs on the banks. It leads to hoarding of essential materials and foods. So caremongering is the opposite of that. Caremongering is spreading the word, spreading the gospel of care and compassion, checking in with people to see how they are, saying, what can I do for you? Is there any way I can support you right now? If we can switch from fearmongering to caremongering, that will go a long way. Now, you might say, hey, Nurse Keith, you are fear-mongering because you're talking about what the president said and about people who died because they ate some sort of chloroquine mixture fed to fish and it killed them. Yeah, you could call that fear-mongering. You could just say, I'm an acting as a nurse journalist telling it like it is and curating and distilling information for you. I like to fall in that direction, but... Some people might consider it fear-based and not want to listen, and that's fine. But we need to talk about the reality of this disease where we are not going to be effective in fighting it. Now, nurses are calling me asking what to do. My feeling is in the age of the coronavirus COVID-19 global pandemic that telehealth jobs are coming in droves. Talk to me in a year, in March of 2021. Maybe I will be proved wrong. However, I will stake a claim. I will not say I'll eat my hat if I'm wrong, because I actually have a have a felt fedora, and I'm quite fond of it, and I don't think it would be digested very well, but I won't eat my hat. But I will eat humble pie, let's say that. 
But I think telehealth is going to become more important. We need to begin the process of screening people for these types of diseases and other conditions far earlier in their engagement process with the healthcare system. And I believe nurse telehealth jobs are going to be taking off throughout 2020 and into perhaps even 2021. Telehealth's not going away, it's growing. Those jobs in telehealth, I believe, are going to start manifesting, even though we're not sure how many there are out there now, I do think it's coming. So if you want a telehealth job where you're safe working from home with a laptop and a phone, I do think the jobs are out there. Start looking. And if you find anything real interesting in that regard, please email me at keith at nursekeith.com. So finally, I want to give a shout out. I want to give a moment of gratitude to the people on the front lines, not only those treating COVID-19 patients, but also those who are treating patients who come to the hospital with a myocardial infarction that's non-COVID related or a stroke or a broken leg or whatever it happens to be. You know, when we talk about surge capacity of our hospital system here, we're often thinking about surge capacity because of COVID-19 cases. But you know what? Other diseases and conditions are happening at the same time like they always do. We have people with cancer, with heart disease, with emphysema, with skin conditions with autoimmune disorders. So, you know, I want to express so much gratitude to anyone out there doing any kind of supportive patient care because it's so important. And we still need to take care of our patients who are COVID negative and maybe have symptoms of renal failure or, I don't know, uh, diabetic neuropathy in their feet and hands that still need treatment. They still need to be seen. And COVID-19, if it takes over so many beds and ICU beds here in the United States and elsewhere, where are the people with strokes and other conditions going to be treated? So all of you working on the front lines, oh my gosh, thank you. I've been speaking with some of you on the phone and I've also been hearing from some of you how scary it is out there. So Hats off to you for doing that difficult work and anything we all can do to support you. You have to ask for what you need. We really would like to support you. Let us know what that would look like. You know, there are small acts of kindness and heroism taking place everywhere every single day. And at any point in the process of any day, we have a choice between the stages of grief. We don't have to stay in denial. We don't have to get lodged in anger. We don't have to stay stuck. And I admit, I, yours truly, Nurse Keith, I've gotten stuck in anger often in the last few weeks. I've gotten moments of sadness. And I am not saying to discount your feelings, but what I am saying is we have a choice. Where would we like to spend most of our time? And this is what I, my wife and I were teaching our 17-year-old friend about the, the grieving process by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, that we can use our thoughts. And now this is not magical thinking or new agey. All I'm saying is that if you're stuck in a moment where you're feeling intense grief or sadness or denial or bargaining or whatever, Acknowledge the feeling, sit with it, allow yourself 20, 
15, 30 minutes to not wallow, but to experience and dive into the feeling. And then at a certain point, you have to say, okay, these are my feelings. They're valid. I'm not ashamed of them. I'm not embarrassed about them. However, I now need to move on because if I stay in this place of fear or anxiety or bargaining or denial, it is not going to get me or anyone else anywhere. So remember, where you spend your energy, where your thoughts go, what are you up to, and how can you help yourself to feel more empowered and less out of control? Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. And sadly, there will still be many more to come, including quite a few interviews with nursing and medical specialists from around the country. And remember that the show notes of this episode can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-4. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, and loved ones, your colleagues, and members of your wider communities. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, who is kindly producing these episodes free of charge to me as a public service. And Mark Cappy Spiesen, our stalwart social media ringmaster, who is helping me to spread the word by keeping you informed via our many online platforms. Stay safe, stay informed, and be the nurse who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs>